0: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 534 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm the CEO of the Australian Writers Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I've been, well, let me see, what are my dot points? I have been glued to every single episode of Succession. Definitely one of my favourite television shows ever. You know, the writing, the acting, the storytelling, even the sets and the clothes, everything is done to the nth degree and it's so well thought out, so clever, and it really is a masterpiece. So I know that there are other people out there who are as obsessed with Succession as I am. I get it. If you haven't discovered succession yet, it's absolutely worth it. I've also been interviewing lots of fabulous authors and um, I can't wait to share them with you in the coming weeks. Oh, and I have created an Instagram account for my gorgeous fluffy cat Rocky. I realize I'm very late to the pet Instagram party, but you know. This is what happens when you have a four-day weekend, you create an Instagram account for your cat, Uh, you know, but it's not just pretty pictures, of course. The Instagram handle, if you would like to follow along, is Productive Rocky, and he's going to be sharing lots of productivity tips, because he's always by my side as I try all sorts of wacky, and sometimes not so wacky, different things to increase my productivity. And I know the irony is not lost on me in that I could possibly be more productive if I wasn't spending time on Rocky's Instagram account or just cuddling him. Anyway, if, if you'd like to connect with him, he'd love to connect with you. Do follow Productive Rocky on Instagram. But let's move on to my writing tip this week. You'll have often heard writers say that you should read your work out loud Yep, I say it all the time. You'll notice things when you read out loud that your eye kind of just scans over when you read your manuscript. So it's a very useful exercise um, to do. A next level to reading your own stories out loud, potentially, is to get AI, artificial intelligence, text to speech to do it. Now, the thing about artificial intelligence is that sometimes it's actually not very intelligent and it will read out exactly what you've written or, you know, what has been typed there. So, for example, um, I don't know if you guys have been into the song by Pink. um, One of her latest songs is called Trustfall. And when it came out, I kind of just stumbled on it on YouTube and and I thought, oh, this is a great song. I love this song. So when I was in the car... I would talk to Siri and ask her to play it, right? Uh, but and, and maybe AI has caught up now in that it's it recognizes it, but in the early days when the song came out, it I used to have to say because Pink uh, has a stylized version of her name and it's P exclamation mark NK, right? Pink. And so I used to have to say can you please play the song For by P NK, (laughs) and Siri would reply back, now playing, trustful, by P, NK. So yes, sometimes AI, not so intelligent, but it eventually catches up. Anyway, this text-to-speech, yeah, back back on track, this is great for helping you to notice clunky sentences or overly long sentences, or especially words that you've repeated several times in a short space. And when you hear it, it sometimes can make you cringe, but it can be very useful. This is a tip that came up in our Creative Writing Stage 1 course as another tool that you can use to help improve your writing. These text-to-speech apps can be pretty good now. And so I think instead of being scared of AI, we should learn how to use it properly and learn how to be a bit more efficient or a bit more productive. Maybe Rocky should write about that in his Instagram account. Um, So some of the text-to-speech apps I've looked at are Natural Readers, and Eleven Labs. I'll put both those links in the show notes. So that's Natural Readers and Eleven Labs. Both have some free options, although Eleven Labs requires you to sign up, whereas the Natural Readers one, you can paste some text into their web app and use it without having to log in. Natural Readers was fun to play around with because you can choose the gender and the accent of the voice and even use different languages. If you do find these useful, please do let me know in the Facebook podcast group. Or if there's another text-to-speech app that you recommend, let us know why. Oh, and if you're not yet in the Facebook podcast group, do join. It's free to join. Just search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community on Facebook and request to join. It'd be great to have you in there. Some fantastic conversations happening in there and writers from you know aspiring to emerging to established. It's a great supportive group. Now, let's move on to our competition this week. I have three copies of The Bowerbird by Julia Donaldson. The author of this week's giveaway is no stranger to the world of picture books, of course. Her book, The Gruffalo, conquered the hearts of children and adults alike. Now, Julia Donaldson is back with her latest picture book, The Bowerbird, illustrated by Catherine Rayner, and we have three copies to give away. Here is the blurb. The Irresistible Tale of Bert, a small bird with a very big heart, from, of course, Julia Donaldson. Bert, the bowerbird, is looking for love. He has made the most perfect nest, complete with a pretty purple flower, and is hoping it will help him to meet the bird of his dreams. But when the demanding Nanette comes along, she is far from impressed. Poor Bert is hurt and flies off to bring her presents aplenty. But will it ever be enough? And is Nanette really worthy of sweet Bert's love? Oh, Okay, entries close on the twenty-fourth of April. Just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions for your chance to win one of three copies. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. Now I also wanted to give a big shout out to Katie Jones whose books Storybook House and the sequel Storybook House 2, A Spirit's Revenge, are both out now with New Holland Publishers. And Katie is a graduate of our courses at the Australian Writers' Centre. So I'm very, very, very excited that she's had this publishing success. She had been working in finance for over a decade when she decided to rekindle her love of creative writing. So she enrolled in Fiction Essentials Structure to help her, you know, build the bones of her spooky story. She said... I just started writing scenes from the book, but I needed to find a way to make the book flow, and the Australian Writers' Centre course on structure helped me do that. Katie is also a big fan of the podcast, thanks Katie, and says that she loves hearing the perspectives of other writers that we have on the show. You can read all about Katie's journey from finance to fiction on our blog now, and I'll put that link in the show notes as well. So a big congratulations to Katie on your books. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writer Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our self-paced course, Fiction Essentials Structure, is a valuable guide for any writer keen to master their narrative tension, pacing, climax and more. Whether you're just starting on a novel or working on a structural edit, this course provides you with the practical steps to build a coherent story from start to finish. You'll discover how to choose the right structure for your story and expertly manage the plot elements so that your pacing is spot on. And most importantly, your readers are glued to each page. No matter what genre you write, all stories need a strong framework. And this course will show you how to achieve it for every story you write. And because this is one of our online self-paced courses, you'll enjoy instant access and can learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. Find out more at writercentre.com.au slash structure. That's writercenter.com.au slash structure. I also wanted to give a big thanks to LektoraSatisfetcher22 from Australia, who kindly left us a review of this podcast with a five-star rating. The gentle push I needed to move forward, they said. This podcast has supported me and encouraged me for a couple of years now. I was trying to make the transition from two decades of scientific writing into the creative writing world and came across Valerie and her many talented guest writers with their helpful tips just what I needed to help me manage the imposter syndrome. I don't tell people I'm a writer. I've published a book, launched it, delivered public talks about it, and I just know I am one. The podcast has given me confidence and the Australian Writers' Centre courses have reinforced my eagerness to persist. Thanks, Valerie and friends. Thank you so much, Lectora. I really appreciate you taking the time to give us that feedback and I just think it's so awesome that you've... Um, got that confidence and made progress in your writing journey. So that's wonderful. And of course, if anyone else has um, time to, or if you've got 30 seconds out of your day to leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts, that would be awesome. Because it helps us in the rankings and hopefully get discovered by other people. But now let's move on to... Are you ready for the word of the week? I hope so, because it's time for the word of the week. It's fulgent. That's F-U-L-G-E-N-T, fulgent. Now, it sounds like it might be related to pungent, meaning smelly, or maybe bulgy, (laughs) but actually it's an adjective, meaning shining, brightly, or resplendent. And in fact, The red panda, which is a cute little animal that looks, you know, a bit like a raccoon crossed with a cat, nothing like the regular giant panda. Its Latin name is Allurus fulgens, which means shining or glittering cat. There you go, fulgent. And that was the word of the week. But now let's move on to our writer in residence this week. Today, I'm talking to Jenny Jackson, based out of Brooklyn Heights. Her debut novel is Pineapple Street, and it's already a New York Times bestseller. She's also executive editor at Alfred A. Knopf, which is part of Penguin Random House. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on Pineapple Street. Wow. Okay, so for readers who haven't got a copy yet, What is it about? So Pineapple Street is the story of three women
1: in one wealthy Brooklyn Heights family. We have Darlie, the oldest sister who was born with money, Sasha, the in-law who's married into money, and then we have Georgiana, the millennial conscience of the family who wants to give all her money away. So why did you want to write this book? I wanted to write about a family. I wanted to write about a group of people who love each other very much, but who often misunderstand each other's intentions. And then I also wanted to write about this strange time that we're living in, where people are set to inherit in America the greatest fortune in history. It's called the Great Wealth Transfer. And yet, the generation that is set to inherit this money, millennials, have a very complicated
0: relationship with wealth and with generational wealth. So um, the American cover of the book actually looks quite different to the Australian cover, which is this one. And the author that blurbs it in America is different to the authors who blurb it in Australia, who are Helen Fielding, the author of Bridget Jones's Diary, and at the top here it is Kevin Kwan, who obviously wrote the phenomenon Crazy Rich Asians. Now, the thing is, Kevin... uh, is wrote Crazy Rich Asians, and he is unashamedly part of that one percent. He comes from that world. Are you? I
1: I I am not a billionaire. I am not. <laughs> I am a uh, a middle class girl from New England who happens to be an expert eavesdropper. Uh, so I I live in Brooklyn Heights. And I actually lived on Pineapple Street when I was writing this novel. And I think that one of the advantages of being an outsider is that sometimes you're able to see things that an insider might not even notice about themselves. And so, you know, when I go to my children's preschool auction, their fundraiser, and I see that they're auctioning off a child-sized Tesla or a mommy's Botox party, I'm like, this is ridiculous and this has to go in a book, you know? And so one of my sort of secret superpowers is being an outsider who has had some access to this world, but who can still kind of see the foibles and poke fun at it.
0: So let's just talk about your career before Pineapple Street. Uh, You work as an editor, at um, Penguin Random House or at Alfred A. Knopf, part of Penguin Random House. Um, Did you always wanted to get into the book publishing industry or did you have a career before that?
1: No, I did. You know, I wanted to be a writer when I was younger and I studied writing in high school and college. And then when I graduated college, I thought, well, I need to be able to pay rent. I should get a job. And hilariously, I thought publishing would be a great way to make some money. Publishing (laughs) is just not lucrative, but I really wanted to be with books. I wanted to work with books and I fell in love with my job. I mean, ask any of my friends. I've had the same job for 20 years and it's been such a happy career for me. I find working as an editor extremely rewarding. It's intellectually intimate. You get to shape stories and I just get paid to be part of the best book club on the planet. And so that was enough for
0: me for 20 years. So then what was the catalyst for you to finally write your own novel, which has become a New York times bestseller is like a good morning America peak. I mean, insane. It's I
1: it's, it has truly been wild and thrilling. I wrote the novel, um, Starting in 2020, when we were all working from home. So I started it around in the fall of 2020, and it was sort of in the US. It was after the real true panic had passed, but we were still all remote. We weren't seeing our friends. We weren't going to restaurants. We weren't going to parties. And I was just longing for the sparkliness of the social world. I missed gossiping and flirting and seeing people and i just i missed all of that fun and so i sat down to write a novel that was full of all of the things i so desperately wanted to do it's not a coincidence that pineapple <laughs> street is full of parties and full of nights out and full of restaurants i mean it's everything that i wanted to be doing and i just poured it all into this book to try and create a joyful world that i missed
0: so but, but why did you decide to write it? Because you still had the opportunity to write it in the last 20 years or write a book in the last 20 years. Was it? Did you have more time because of lockdowns or what was it? The time was
1: some of it. It was a combination of time in that I wasn't commuting and I wasn't going out to dinner and going out to lunch. So I did have some found time. But also, very strangely, I think that um, – when I'm doing work, I sort of have two different, um, two different buckets of energy. And one of them is the energy that goes towards managing my inbox, drafting letters, looking at profit and loss statements, evaluating author tracks, you know, the real analytical part of my job. And then there's this other whole bucket. And that bucket is writing descriptive copy, going out to lunch with agents, charming authors trying to win beauty contests to get the best authors for Knopf. All of those things are sort of um, some kind of combination of creativity and charm. And what is writing if not charm? You know, it's it's you on the page, making a reader feel the way you want them to feel. And I just felt like I had all of this kind of pent up,
0: Energy and I had to put it somewhere. Mm. And so, how did you then divide your day? Did you think I'm I'm just going to try this, or I'm definitely writing a novel? And if it was the latter, did you dedicate you know specific times to make it happen?
1: I was incredibly driven, especially once I got going on it. I was incredibly driven, and I woke up at four 30 or five every morning and I wrote until about nine o'clock and I would take, you know, little breaks cause I have small children and they would get up and I would, you know, give them something to eat, but pretty much, you know, they were, they really didn't mind if I ignored them for two hours and let them watch cartoons and, you know, eat chocolate chip granola bars. And <laughs> it was just a few months. Um, and then I, after, um, after I was done writing for the day, then I would do my job um, and, you know, log in and edit and do that work. And then at the end of the day, I would put my kids in the bathtub and uh, pour myself a glass of wine and then go sit on the closed toilet lid with my laptop. And I would write for another hour while they took a bath because it was just like, That was the only time I had, I had the early mornings and I had that little window at night before bed. And, you know, I think some authors talk about writing nights and weekends. They don't have kids. You can't write on weekends. If you have kids on kids, my weekends, my whole job is like entertaining them, you know, and you can't do late nights because your kids wake up really early. And so for me, it was just those found windows of time. Wow,
0: so if you wrote from about five thirty to or five to nine thirty and then an hour in the evening, how long then did it take till you were to till you had a first draft?
1: I had a first draft in maybe five or six months, and then I spent another year making it good.
0: Wow, okay. So it came out fast. Yeah, it did come out fast. Did you um have a word count goal? I did. Uh, I tried to do 2,000 words a day. That's a lot. It's a yeah. lot. I was really driven. In that case, did you know what was going to happen? You had your premise or what did you start with? Did you start with the characters or just the idea of of how this generation deals with money?
1: So I'm not an outliner. Um, I knew that I had the premise of Sasha, the in-law who moves into... her her husband's family home and can't quite feel comfortable. And then I knew about Georgiana and I knew that this character, Georgiana was a spoiled young woman who would suffer a terrible loss. And I knew what that loss would be. And I knew that that loss would change her and make her want to be a better person. The character who was more mysterious to me was Darley Um, which is so funny because in some ways Darlie and I are the most similar. She's like really driven, professional, intellectual with two small children. That's me. Um, And so it's so strange that it was the hardest for me to get to her. But I found that she was really flat and just wasn't working until I discovered that Darlie was going to be a passionate math geek who worked in aviation investment banking and who loved airplanes and the business of flying. And, you know, I loved the research I did for that storyline. But in some ways, giving Darlie an intellectual pursuit brought that character alive, and it also changed the stakes. So one of the things that I struggled with in this book is that when you're writing about characters with extreme wealth, how do you ever really put them in peril, you know, Darley's husband loses his job. So what they they're billionaires. Like, so what, how do you make her have a sympathetic problem, you know, and by giving her a career she loved and showing what it meant for her to lose that career and for her to lose her earning power and what that did to their relationship. That is where the drama
0: came from for that character. Yeah, I love Dali. I think Dali was great. You mentioned research, having to do research. And of course, there's research in the form of eavesdropping, which is a little bit different to actual research because you can observe what people do socially and how they react in certain situations and so on. But to take Dali as an example, when Dali was in the her career like before she has kids and is, as you say, a maths geek and was really into aviation and she used to she, – she figured out how JetBlue, the airline – Um, did their numbering system on their tickets. And she would buy a ticket at 12.01 in in the morning and buy a ticket at 11.59 on on the last day of the month. And because of the numbering, the sequential numbering system, that is how she worked out how many tickets they sold and was therefore really able to analyse how they were tracking. How in the world did you research that or figure that out? Or did you make it up?
1: (laughs) It's not made up. So don't get me in trouble or don't get anybody in trouble. (laughs) But I absolutely stole this from a friend. So when my husband and I first started dating, he had two roommates and um, one of them was just a total av geek. And on Sunday mornings, you know, we would be lying around like eating, you know, Bacon, egg and cheese sandwiches, watching like Harrison Ford's The Fugitive for the millionth time, just being lazy 25 year olds on a Sunday. And he would be sitting at his desk trading JetBlue stock because he had figured out this loophole and he he knew he knew how to make money. And so they did shut down the loophole at a certain point, but not before he made himself a a pretty penny doing it. And he um. This friend was incredibly helpful in teaching me more about the world. And you know, it was so interesting because I shared the book with him several times and he was so into the details of it. And Darlie is so into the details of it. And that's what really makes it alive was him, you know, I flew in his private, his, he flies planes. And so I flew in his um, Sirius with him and he showed me, you know, this is what makes this plane so special. It has like the leather detailing. It's like being inside a BMW. And also, you know, he knows every single flight route out of JFK. So he'd be like, oh, well, if he's on this flight, American Airlines, they don't have Wi-Fi. So this, you know, see, so he helped me figure out mechanics. I'm so grateful to this friend, but you know, he won't let me thank him by his name, because he's such an insider
0: in that world that he has to protect his anonymity. Wow. Okay. (laughs) So apart from your, your characters, those three women, I mean, there's other such incredibly rich characters, the mother-in-law, I mean, Sasha's mother-in-law, Tilda, who is like the matriarch of the family and her, the things she says are just actually so bizarre and funny. How did you paint these characters? Did you do any kind of character development you know, on their own, like before you, they even came out on the page? Like, did you kind of think, oh, she would wear this, she would go to that country club, she would, you know, that sort of thing? Or did you let it come out on the page?
1: Hilda was interesting for me to write because the more time I spent with her, the more over the top she became. And I just started having so much fun with her. You know, there's this one scene where um Georgiana is trying to confess to her mother that she has done something really bad and she says mom have you ever done something that you were ashamed of that made you feel just like you didn't even know who you were and her mother says oh, whenever I feel like that, I just go and buy myself some flowers and not from that florist over in the train station. I go to the one over on Montague and I just have them put together something from the refrigerator case. And you're reading this and you're like, oh my goodness, you are missing the plot, you know? And, but I just felt like, At that point, I knew her and then I really did like sort of rethread the book with her character because she just came more and more alive. And I know she's the most over the top in the book, but I love having her sort of as a foil to the younger characters because she is the most set in her ways and she is a product of her generation. And one of my true fascinations in this book is the way that our generational identity and even our micro generations very much influence our relationship with class and with inherited wealth.
0: Books like this, like Crazy Rich Asians, like the ridiculous success of the television show Succession, which are about the one percenters, why do you think they're so popular and we have such a we as a society have such a fascination with um how these people live you know
1: it's interesting and i'm going to speak from a very american perspective for a moment and i'll be curious to know how you feel that this applies or doesn't apply in australia in america we um we grew up with a very different attitude than say the english our our traditional structures of class are not quite as baked in and so we talk a lot about the american dream and the american dream means being a self-made man going from nothing to something so every single one of us on some level have been raised to harbor this dream that one day we will be a millionaire one day that will be our life. And so there is like a very real aspiration. I think that a lot of us carry and it's funny because in some ways it's held us back as a culture because, you know, we continue to vote for policies that increase the income gap and that, you know, continue to reinforce the, um, the the ability of the super rich to hand down money to their children because we all just have bought into this pretty far-fetched fantasy that we're all going to be billionaires. It's, it's kind of a funny piece of, like,
0: mass delusion, you know? Yes. <laughs> I guess, and it's also just the... um Reading about the the, the the mini Teslas that you can buy for your kids. Right? It is also
1: <laughs> just funny on a certain level, I think, because yeah. it's escapism, right? It helps you as, because money for the vast majority of us is a source of tension in our marriages. It's a source of tension in our families. It's a source of stress. And taking that away is is a lovely
0: piece of escape, too. Mm. Just in terms of fun reading, it's a, also a real source of power, especially in a family, isn't it? And that also becomes evident in various ways in in I don't want to give any, away any spoilers um, in, in this in, in this story. Um, with this story, you wrote from different points of view, Qu- quite a number of different points of view. Was that a conscious decision at the start? Or did you kind of start writing or, and see what happens?
1: <laughs> it was a conscious decision because I wanted to write about a family that loved each other. And I think that um, when you're writing from close third person, multiple point of view, you get to work in this magic zone that lies between how a character understands themselves and how a reader can understand that character. And that little space is where misunderstandings occur. And so when I would rotate between chapters, you could see that Darlie and Georgiana had heard one story about Sasha and her prenup. When you get to Sasha's story, Sasha has a different version of that, but you can see how a misunderstanding escalates and escalates and escalates. And so by using rotating close third person point of view, I was able to exploit those misunderstandings in a way that I think and hope is satisfying for the reader.
0: Mm. Now, there's no doubt you brought your 20 years of experience as an editor to this novel. What kind of stories do, do you edit? Like, Do you specialize in a particular area or anything like that?
1: You know, I um I do all fiction but I am all over the map. So I published Kevin Kwan and The Crazy Rich Asians books and I I love working with Kevin. I love working with funny writers. So I also published Helen Fielding's last two books. Um I published um some very literary books, Um, Emily St. John Mandel's station 11. I published the last two Cormac McCarthy novels. I also published Dolly Alderton, who is so funny. So I really love a mix of, of voices. Um, And to me, it doesn't really matter whether it is capital L literature or whether it is, you know, women's fiction, because I think it's all valuable and it's all
0: entertaining. And, um, can help us all connect. So I would love to touch on when you get the manuscript in front of you, that's massive, right? It's 80,000, 100,000, whatever words. So where in the world do you start? I mean, obviously you read it, (laughs) but when you're reading it in your brain, what is your approach in the first instance to when you think, okay, I've got this manuscript now and I've got to edit it?
1: Yeah. So I like to do one read through where I don't write anything on the page at all. And as soon as I finish that, I like to write um, a few paragraphs just about my big picture views on it. And that is really just going to be, gosh, the end doesn't work. And I didn't understand the main character until halfway through, you know, so that's the big picture stuff. And often I actually prefer to just work through that as my first round of edits with the writer, because to me, it feels silly to spend a lot of time, you know, talking about word repetition when there's a good chance they're going to cut whole chapters. Um, But that's really, it is at the beginning. I like for it to be very conversational with the writer as we do the big picture stuff. But, you know, I look at, um, I look at my job as a service to writers. And so I also am so open to, write, to working with writers however they like. So I have writers who will send me their work every 30 pages as they go and want comments as they go. I have writers who will not share it until it is absolutely perfect, you know? So I just have to kind of adapt to what they want. But the ones
0: who share you uh, 30 pages as they go – Do you then get feedback on those 30 pages? Because what if they go, oh, actually they were crap. I'm going to chuck them. (laughs)
1: It's, those are tricky for me. It's hard, but I find that more that's when a writer is in trouble and they need me. And so that's often actually an opportunity more for cheerleading than anything else.
0: Right, right. So when you wrote this then, did you have, were you assigned an editor and what was it like being on the other side of the fence? Yeah, so I did not
1: share a single page until it was done and polished, and I felt amazing about it because it was my first time out, and I didn't want to embarrass myself. Um, I had an agent who I had decided very early on that I wanted to work with, and so she read the manuscript overnight, said yes, she could sell it for me. So it's, of course, a little awkward because as an insider, I know everybody in the publishing industry. And so she sent it out to about 20 editors and I knew some would pass and that's totally fine. You know, nobody, no book is, you know, everybody wants. Um, But you know what I discovered? I discovered, you know, that thing they say about how when you're looking to buy a home, you can walk into a house and you just know if it's your home. Turns out it's really the same way, picking an editor. You know, I had several conversations, but I had a conversation with Pamela Dorman and I just knew that that was who I wanted to be with and we've worked together so
0: beautifully. Wow. So, but just let's take a step back before you got, you know, editors expressing their interest or whatever. When your agent sent it out there, it, it must be a very exposing feeling because for 20 years, you, you know, these people yes. and suddenly you're, you're laying it all out on the table. First, what did that really feel like? And how long did you have to live in that
1: space? I kept joking to my husband. I was like, honey, I feel like I've gone to med school and it's like the last day of med school. And now I have to take off all my clothes and all my classmates are giving me an exam. And he's like, you know, they don't do that at med school. Right. <laughs> so it was, But I just felt, I felt totally, totally exposed. But then I just, I've, I know I've had a very charmed experience, but you know pamela dorman got the book in the morning and at midnight wrote and said she loved it
0: oh my god
1: i know so, so you I didn't, didn't have
0: to live in that space for very long at all
1: <laughs> no i and i i there i understand on every level what a lucky
0: experience
1: that was but also you can see why i loved her from day 1
0: <laughs> yes yes so then the during the editing process how much did you have to change?
1: It was a lot. It was a lot and it was really hard. So they made me write another 15,000 words. Where? <laughs> I know. So they had me expand Sasha's story a lot. They had me write more about Sasha's life outside of her marriage. They also didn't feel like... um, thord and sasha worked through their problems enough and i knew i didn't think that they were going to ever perfectly work through their i don't want sorry spoilers um that was something that they had me work on and so mm-hmm. i i added a lot more material there and then they had me move up i'm not this occurs early in the book so i feel okay talking about it but um in a previous version, Malcolm is fired later in the book and they said he needs to be fired in Darley's first chapter. But moving that up meant a reorganisation of so many other plot points. So it was a huge challenge. Mm,
0: wow. Okay. So then um, what was the most, cha- the most challenging thing about writing this story?
1: Oh, the most challenging thing about it was, you know, my writer, Chris Bajalian, who wrote The Flight Attendant, he always says to me, every book tries to kill itself at least once. And I've only written one, but I did get stuck halfway through. And I thought, I don't know, maybe this isn't my book. Maybe I don't know what I'm doing. And so the having the faith in the book to push through was the hardest point. And I know so many writers get to this same point with their books. And so if anybody listening to this has a book that they got stuck on, I could tell you story after story after story of authors who put a book down for a year, two years, 10 years. Julia Glass put three Junes down for 10 years before she finished it. And then she won the national book award. So, you know, don't give up on yourself. Every book, Every book gets tough
0: sometimes. So you felt that at the midway-ish point, and but what did you? But when you feel stuck, it's very hard to be unstuck. What did you make yourself do to push through?
1: I took one of the storylines and I pulled it out and I tried to reconceive of it. And I actually moved Georgiana to Boston and gave her a whole different thing. And I messed with it for a week or two weeks, and then I was like well, that's a total failure. And so then I went back to where I was before, but weirdly that exercise had loosened something and it flowed after that. So I just, it's almost like I needed to mess it up to realize that I had something good before and it made me more focused and centered on keeping the family together in Brooklyn Heights and keeping that going.
0: Are you writing the next
1: book? I have a little bit and I'm looking forward to this summer to um, going away and, you know, cozying up with some pages, but it's going to be um, set in my hometown in, um, I grew up in a beach town in Massachusetts. So a small town novel rather than a big city novel. Um, And I'm
0: excited. I'm excited to immerse myself in that world. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on Pineapple Street. Uh, My final question before we go is um, what would your top three tips be to aspiring writers who would love to be in a position where you are one day with their debut novel published and on the New York Times bestseller
1: list? (laughs) (laughs) So tip number one is to keep a journal and just be a magpie, be an eavesdropper, Whenever you hear something good, just tuck it in the journal because you never know where you might find space for it. Um, Is that what you um, did? You do do that? I do that. I do that. I actually, maybe this is embarrassing, but I do a lot in my phone also in the notes app just Mm -hmm. because I'm out and about and I hear stuff, you know. Um, The other thing that I would say is to, if you're casting about and trying to figure out what your voice is, Think about the books that you really love. Think about the books that speak to you and try and put yourself in dialogue with those books. Don't say like, oh, thrillers really sell. I'm going to write a thriller. If you don't read thrillers, that's, that's not for you. Try and try and get in conversation with the writers who mean something to you, because that is, that is the bandwidth that you're going to be operating on. Um, and then the last piece of advice is that it's never too late. I mean, like I've, I'm halfway through my career and this was not something I thought that I was going to do. And it's been so enormously gratifying. So, you know, no matter where you are in your life, and your career, it's never too late to write a book. And so, you know, give it a whirl.
0: I love it. Congratulations on the pineapple street. And thank you so much for your time today, Jenny.
1: Thank you, Valerie. I so appreciate it.
0: If you're enjoying this podcast, you may also like the book that Alison Tate and I have written together called So You Want to Be a Writer, How to Get Started While You Still Have a Day Job. Full of practical tips, motivation and inspiration, it's ideal for anyone who's thinking of dipping their toes into the wonderful world of writing. We've created a blueprint for aspiring writers to follow and it's suitable regardless of whether you want to plunge straight into this new career or if you need to explore it while you're still busy in your day job. Let us hold your hand as you turn your dream into a reality. Buy your copy today at soyouwanttobeawriter.com.au forward slash book. All right, so before I leave you, I have a fun fact for you. This week I was reading about irreversible binomials, as you do. So in linguistics, an irreversible binomial is a pair of words that go together in a certain order. For example, salt and pepper, bride and groom, mix and match, wear and tear, back and forth, food and drink. In English, it would just sound weird to say them the other way around, although, you know, maybe in other languages they say pepper and salt or cheese and macaroni and cold and hot or who knows they might say groom and bright but there you go irreversible binomials so i'm going to leave you with that fun concept we've come to the end of this week's episode feel free to connect with me on social media. That's uh, at Valerie Koo on Twitter and Instagram. And I'm also over at ValerieKoo.com. But of course, you can find all of the show notes at uh, writercentercomau slash podcast. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time.